Hi, welcome everyone. It's Narelle Carter Quinlan here from the Saltwater Songlines Project. And today I'm sitting with my good friend and colleague, Lisa Baldwin. And Lisa works with turtles and that's been my impetus to reach out to her for this interview. I've known Lisa, uh, I was thinking about this, Lisa, it's about 12 years, no, 10, 10 years. Um, yeah, so I met Lisa when I was presenting at a yoga therapy conference down in Melbourne. And um, so we've known each other all that time in the capacity of yoga colleagues, buddies. Lisa was up in Darwin at the time and um, I went up there to teach and we chatted more about country and Kakadu and Sumatra and various places. And uh, then Lisa moved to the Sunshine Coast and got very involved with turtle care quite quickly, actually. And that's what I'm really wanting to dive into here. So thanks so much, Lisa, for joining me. A pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited <laughs> to talk about it. <laughs> okay. So tell me what it is that you actually do with turtles. Okay. So um, I'm what you call a turtle conservation volunteer. So I volunteer my time um, towards the conserving of the nesting turtle species that we have here on the Sunshine Coast. So we originally, maybe a little bit of a backstory, how we got involved in the program was, as you said, we moved from Darwin. Well, when we were living in Darwin, when I say we, I'm talking about my husband, Wayne, and myself. Um, when we were living in Darwin, we were part of an environmental group, a friends group, friends of Fog Dam up there looking after a wetland. So we had already this voluntary um, work that we would do, giving back to the environment. So when we moved to um, the Sunshine Coast, we didn't know anybody um, and we were moving here as a lifestyle choice. Um, our, I was going to restart um, the yoga studio and we were looking at how we would meet people and the obvious choice was to join some form of volunteer group to meet like-minded people and just start to expand and build a community here on the coast. So we moved in the, the January in 2014 and um, I took a walk on the beach. We live right by the beach. I took a walk on the beach and there was actually a sign posted to say that the turtle nest that had been laid had been relocated to our beach where we live, and which surprised me. Um, that we would have nesting turtles. Uh, Sunshine Coast, for those of you that are unaware, is a highly dense suburban area. It's a city, um, but we have we live right on the on the nesting beaches. So that surprised me. Um, so a couple of months later, when we started looking to join a group, we wondered if there was something around this turtle business or whether it was something that was just being done within local government. And we found that there was a large volunteer group involved. So we join so as you said we were not here 12 months and we joined the group um the turtle season here on the sunshine coast runs from november through april so within i know eight nine months of moving here we were getting involved um in turtles having no idea what that meant at all <laughs> no idea what that meant at all except it had something to do with turtles we had never seen one um as such, in, in our local environment. So the Turtle Care Program here on the Sunshine Coast runs within 
Um, it's run by the local council, but it is a volunteer group. There's 200 members and we patrol an area of local suburban beaches through the months that the turtles are nesting. Um, and that particular group sits under a much larger group, which is called the Queensland Turtle Research Project. That's a project that's been headed by a scientist, Dr. Cole Limpus. He's a renowned um, turtle expert, internationally renowned, and he his project is 50 years, just over 50 years old. So 50 years of researching um, the turtles that lay off the Queensland coast. And so part of the research that we're doing on the beach, so we're volunteers, but we are actually citizen scientists in that we're recording and researching the events that happen on the beach. So we got involved, went to a meeting, met some lovely people. They said all we needed to do was walk on the beach once a week every morning at 5 a.m. and look for turtle tracks. And we thought, well, we walk on the beach anyway. We're early birds. We can do that. So um, that's what started us in the project. Um, but also very quickly, um, the very first, that there's quite extensive training um, for those who are interested in the very first training that we had here on the coast, which talks about uh, Dr. Colby has come, they talk about um, sea turtle biology, um, habitat, migration, and those sorts of things. So you, have, you learn more about the animal that you're going to be looking for and working with. And during that very first information session, that was our first exposure to him, he mentioned that they were always looking for people to do remote island work, which involves going to remote, remote islands and doing turtle work. And because we had just moved from the Northern Territory where we did a lot of remote camping and travelling, we were very excited at that idea. But there was at least three years of training involved before we could do that. So we were already on the path with that as a goal in, in mind. And we do that. Um, we, we now do that as part of our, our turtle work. So that's sort of a brief intro in how we got into it. That's huge. Yeah. And I think that's something that people don't really realise about the volunteer process, that there is so much training involved and that it's really important that training contextualises what you do. Yes, that's important context, but it helps you uh, know how to work with the animal and know how to work in a way that's meaningful and streamlines into research. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important comment or thing to note when we preface that by saying we're working on public beaches. So the we have we work under very specific permits within the Queensland Total Research Project. And um, it's a wild animal that we're working with, wild animals that we're working with, and there are very particular ethics around the way that they can be handled, when they can be handled, who can handle them what that handling involves and, and it's very specific around collecting data yeah. and then also um, I believe it's very important then because generally we're not doing this work in isolation with the public because it's the public beach if we're on the beach at 2am sure probably not too many members of the public are walking their dog yeah. but if we're on the beach at 6am in the morning processing or looking at turtle tracks and potentially locating turtle eggs there are members of the public that we need to engage with and, and explain what we're doing, what our role is in the project itself and, and how it works. It's yeah. Really 
That sort of feeds in in my mind to public outreach, as in it helps educate people not only about the animal, not only about the ecosystem, not only about the ramifications, but how they might participate in some small way. Absolutely. Um, and they're critical. They're critical. They're critical for information for us um, in that we they know who to call. They see a turtle or if they see something that, is turtle related that they know who to call it's also really important for us that you know for me especially i'm very passionate about education for conservation you can't conserve a species potentially or an environment or a habitat people don't understand firstly that it's there what is about it that needs protecting but also how do they go about participating in that process in a way that's not going to damage but in fact enhance so that that in that regard, we're like the front line of meeting the people on the beach in the habitat, discussing what they can visually see. So potentially that could be turtle tracks um, and then potentially looking at a a nest site, possible nest site, how we go about finding the eggs. Often we're questioned about why we might move eggs Mm -hmm. um, or and, and you know, this we're talking at the moment on from a positive aspect, but of course we also meet resistance on the beach with people who would question why we're interfering in nature's process as they would see it. So then that becomes particularly important then in the way that we answer and address that. Um, so a little bit of information about the species itself and why the project is so important is we have, you know, there's six, seven species of marine turtles in the world. Um, so when we're talking about sea turtles, we're talking about um, turtles that live in our oceans as opposed to our freshwaters, turtles that live in creeks and rivers. And, of course, we have turtles across all continents um, so and, or in all seas. So here in Australia, we have seven, six of the seven species, not all nesting, but certainly living in Australian waters. So um, here in Queensland and here on the Sunshine Coast, we have um, certain species living in the waters, but they're not necessarily the same as those that are nesting on the beaches. So the turtles that nest primarily on the Sunshine Coast, where I live and work, are loggerhead turtles. So there are loggerhead turtles that have um, there's genetic stocks of loggerhead turtles all around the world, but the um, loggerhead turtles that we have here, so they're the Western Pacific loggerheads, south, or, or we could say that they're the they're the ones that literally just live and nest of Queensland. Um, they're listed as critically endangered. Uh, so yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So yeah. that's the that's that that. It, that status, I guess, is what dictates the research data and collection. So the other prime nesting species here, it's not what we call prime. We The other nesting turtle that we get is the green turtle. We probably get, I don't know what the percentages are, but let's say we've got 60 turtles nesting this season. There might be four, six green turtles. It's not a lot. It's the smaller, it's the smaller percentage. Um, but the green turtle population is um, all all turtle sea turtle populations are vulnerable, but the green turtle, especially here in Queensland, is is on the increase. Numbers are on the increase, uh-huh. whereas the loggerheads, the loggerheads are not. So, and we have a much smaller breeding population of loggerheads. So, within the within the um, 
the program, we have what we call a doomed egg policy, which means we're trying to protect every egg. So if a sea turtle comes up or a loggerhead turtle comes up on the Sunshine Coast and lays her eggs below the below the first June, which would mean that potentially it would be subject to saltwater inundation. Now, in a healthy population of sea turtles nesting, you would just leave them there and they would be part of the natural attrition in the number of eggs that are laid by a reptile. But because the species is um, threatened, every egg that we can save and move to a safer spot means that potentially that's another turtle that gets back to the ocean that can start to rebuild the population. Yeah. So that's the work that we're doing. We're looking for turtle tracks. We're finding turtle nests. If the nest is what we consider to be in a vulnerable position, then we relocate the nest up as close as possible to where it was laid, but in a, high, a, a higher position on the June set so that potentially then that nest will survive through to hatching. And then at a hatching, generally, there, there are some threats to the actual hatching process um, but most of what emerges from eggs we get to the water okay. here. so yeah. that means that you know if we save a hundred eggs that were laid down at the high water mark and then from that nest of a hundred eggs 75 or 80 make it to the water we're already 80 hatchlings ahead had we not relocated that nest. Mm. I'm going to ask a really naive question. And that question is, do we have an understanding of why that particular species is critically endangered? Yeah, we do. So um, the, uh, there's a few, there's a few uh, reasons. Um, if we start with the, the particular, so each, 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 um, species of sea turtle has a different life cycle they have the same life cycle in that you know that they hatch out of eggs they spend all of their living life in the sea they only come on land usually to nest some turtles come to bask will come to bask into a low tide area but then go back to sea um they what surprises most people is that they don't come back to nest the loggerheads don't nest until they're 28 or 30 years old so that means we have a species who has to live in the ocean for, for 30 years before it's reproducing offspring. So that means already we're looking at a reduced population from um, hatching to nesting. Um, at the moment, they say it's one in 1,000. We'll make it back in 30 years. So obviously if you're looking at a population that is endangered, then you need to try and increase that to two in 1,000 potentially or more. Yeah. Um, the other thing that makes it particularly or has had a huge impact on the loggerhead species that we have here is that its annual its migration is, they're called the great migrators or the ancient mariners, we call them. Um, so when the hatchling emerges here on the Sunshine Coast or anywhere on the Queensland coast, um, they head east um, until directly off, the, directly off the beach. Our beaches here face east. They go straight off the beach. They, they swim um, without feeding. It's three to five kilometres till they meet the um, East Australian Channel. 
and that channel, anyone who's seen Nemo, that's the channel that carries Nemo down to Sydney. Um, so basically our baby hatchlings go out there. Once they reach the channel, they start to, the, the current, I should say, not the channel, the current, they start to float and then they're surface feeders. Um, so the, and they're opportunistic surface feeders. So then they that current takes them, goes down towards Sydney and then it splits and one, one part of the current goes to Sydney and the other part of the current goes across north of New Zealand. Now, who knows how they know which way to go, but the little log heads go to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It's north of New Zealand. And it takes a number of years, and they go right across to the um, coast of South America to um, primarily Chile and Peru, and they spend their early years there. Um, then they, when they make their return journey, they don't come back the same way. They go north, They go more of a circular route and they come back through the um, South Pacific areas. Why wouldn't you? I think, you know, around through areas around New Caledonia, Samoa and so on. And then um, they come back to northern Queensland generally or somewhere on the Queensland coast to where they find a foraging habitat. And we're looking at about 15 years at that point. And then they're basically living in our Queensland waters um, until they're ready for nesting. So that life, that process of migration subjects them to a huge number of threats. Yes. So before, without, without considering that, um, the population um, was very heavily decimated and I, I'd have to check the figure, but it's around the... the the late 70s, I think, or the 80s, where our fishing fleets here um, on the coast were, were always traditionally small vessels and the nets would only be out for a smaller amount of time. And in that smaller amount of time, because of smaller nets, if a sea turtle was captured, then it would, um, it could stay alive underwater for that period of time. It would be brought up onto the deck. The fishermen would release them and they would be fine. And they introduced these much bigger sort of super trawlers with much bigger nets and those nets then stayed underwater for much longer. So we had a mass um, culling, let's say, um, of adult turtles or turtles of all sizes really that were caught underwater. So Dr. Colympus did and his team did a lot of work, years of work around how to rectify that and that led to the introduction of um, exclusion devices which have now been on trawling nets for a number of years so that stopped that sort of culling of population but it, it did decimate the stock and because um, sea turtles have very specific genetic stocks so the sea the loggerhead sea turtles that we have living in the Queensland stock say southeast Queensland stock are not the same loggerhead turtles that live in the Western Cape of Queensland and across towards the Northern Territory, they're a different genetic stock. They won't, so if our population is lost, those turtles won't come down here and take this habitat and they won't, they don't breed together. So when we talk about sea turtles and their um, vulnerability, it's very specific to location. Yes, right. Ah, oh, I did not know that. Yeah. yeah and, it's, and it's very specific to that journey that they're making. So our particular loggerheads are doing that journey. Loggerheads that live on the West Australian coast, sorry, who nest on the West Australian coast, they're having a different journey 
um, they've recorded a, a loggerhead turtle that was satellite tracked in southern Africa and it came right across the Indian Ocean to Australia. So they're doing these huge migrations, which means they're subject to, and over those 30 years of period. So there's lots of factors. Um, so from our perspective, I guess now, is this is what we've got. We've got a population, so many breeding females, is, and we, so we try to protect those as best we can, but their whole life is spent in the ocean. If we don't have, we can do some things. But what we can do is we can meet the species on the ground, on the beach when they're nesting. So we can we can meet the nesting mother, but we can also ensure that as many as possible of those eggs and hatchlings get back into the water. Yeah, because like when you said, you know, roughly one in a thousand, that is not many. And my mind immediately goes to, I did not understand the full journey that you've just described, but my mind goes straight away to, yeah, well, what's happening out there in the ocean, that it is only one in a thousand on average that makes it back. And how how can we really get to that piece of the jigsaw? Yeah, so, you know, part of that as well is, you know, we've managed to change the fisheries processes here in Australia. But those turtles spend, you know, a decade off the coast of South America. Now, in the past, they their fishing fleets there were very small, not small as in number, but their boats were very small and it was more of a traditional style of fishing. But a lot of the huge, as, as you, know, you may, not, may, may not know, but a lot of the large fishing fleets around global fishing fleets, when they've um, used up or their resources, they move around the, the world's oceans. And so there are also a lot of huge trawlers now fishing off the coasts of those countries in South America. So they're potentially picking up as well those smaller juvenile loggerhead turtles. So there's been in, since we've been in them, we've been now, our seventh season, there has been a lot of work done on trying to protect policies around countries that share migratory species so there's been a lot of work done with birds a lot of people know you know there's the ramsar um um what's the word it's like a legislation i guess you know to protect wetlands wetlands around the world so that migratory birds habitat yeah. is protected well yeah. those sorts of things are in play now for migratory turtle species but you know there's still so much research to be done about what happens in between like you said what are the main threats we can assume a lot of things mm. Yeah, a lot of it is research-based and then as new research comes on then it does take quite a long time from finding something as a threat and then being able to in, implement legislation policy then legislation and then awareness and then you know to make things happen exactly um, and can you know my my huge huge wondering is like how can that be global how can we um, encourage other nations to participate willingly in that awareness and those actions that are necessary to protect those species yeah, that's right. And another thing, of course, we have to always consider, well, I think we do, um, is that often some of the countries where these species are nesting or living, or, you know, foraging or even mating, are living in extreme poverty. Yes. So it's very easy for us to sit here and, and say you shouldn't eat turtle eggs, but if that's a primary source of protein for you and your family, 
then, you know, work has to be done around, and, and, and this has been done across multiple species in places, about making the resource more valuable not to eat. Um, and, and, you know, there's lots of different initiatives and way that, ways that that can be done. Uh, because sea turtles are migratory species, not all of them, but the loggerheads are, yeah. then, then we have to, that that has to be considered. And often, unfortunately, it's only when we realise that something's endangered that we start to, to gather momentum around things. It's almost like we need to get in front of it. Um, yes. Yeah, in front of the moving vehicle that's coming to us, hmm. <laughs> which yeah. actually brings me to something that I hadn't mentioned to you earlier that I wanted to ask, and that's about educational programs um, around where you are to help people, whether that be adults or young people, to understand and know about this. Yeah, sure. So um, we have, so within our turtle care group, we have basically how the group works. It's, as I said, it's a volunteer group. We have dedicated two wonderful dedicated conservation officers on council who run, who have a full-time job for council looking after wildlife. But as part of that, they, they run the turtle care program. Um, but then on actually on the beach, we're divided into the suburb groups. Um, and within each group, you know, our group has 40 volunteers. And then uh, we have one of the larger groups and also one of the more busier groups by busier I mean we have more turtles nesting on our beach um and we have team leaders in in each group and those team leaders basically run the group and they're also um the people who have had the probably the more experience and that could be over many decades or in the case of Wayne and myself we're now team leaders in our group with another couple we haven't been in the program that long but we've done a lot of extra training in order to be able to do that island work. So we have that extra bit of experience. So when we're on the beach, basically we're teaching the people, we're, we're um, training, let's say, or educating our new volunteers. And the, it's, it's interesting that very quickly, with like any information process, if, and it's done by story, most of it is by story. Mm-hmm. So we tell stories, we sit at a nest or we meet people, we tell stories about things that have happened. This is how they learn about the process of it. They learn the biology. They learn the migration. And then when they're meeting with members of the public on the beach, so that's the primary point of education is on the beach. Lady's walking her dog. There's turtle tracks. She sees us on the beach. What's happening? We are, are these a turtle? Are these turtle tracks? Sometimes they go, are these turtle tracks? And we say, come and have a look. We show them what we're doing. And then usually at least there's always a few of us there. Someone will take the role of, talking to that person or the group of people and explain the process yeah that's and then those people learn that and and we have a lot of locals who spend more time sometimes on the beach than we do either walking walking the beach every day surfing and they so they build up a information bundle of about the turtles themselves. And so they, as I said earlier, they're really useful in um, that information is really useful. And if we're not there and something's happening, they know about it or they know who to call. So that's sort of the on-the-ground education that happens sort of naturally. Yeah. Um, we've also been on the beach. Some of our nests, when the hatchlings um, are due to emerge, they generally come out at night. We can, um, last year, a, a certain nest comes to mind. It received a lot of public interest. We had um, probably between 60 and 140 people on the beach every night waiting for the turtles to hatch. Oh, wow. So that's a prime captive audience. 
for education, plus they want to know. They want to know they've got a lot of questions. They want to know what's going to happen, what's going to happen when they come out, what's going to happen when they get in the water. So we're whoever's there within the turtle team, turtle care team is doing that. Again, telling stories, answering questions. Nice, so you build nice. up that level of um, information. Mm. So on a larger perspective this year, the Sunshine Coast Council just wrote a policy document for the um, the ten year, next 10-year plan for how we work with the turtles. I mean, there's a lot of development here on the Sunshine Coast. One of the primary threats that we have here is lighting, too much light, um, which will prevent it female turtle from nesting but it also causes orientation issues for hatchlings so and here on the coast we just heard a statistic on the weekend I'm not sure if it's it's true but that up to 70 percent increase in light glow over the last few years so Mm. it's a big issue so how do we get that information to the wider community so the ones we're meeting on the beach pretty much to the locals the people who live on the strip that runs along the beach, but how do we get that information out to a bigger group? Then that requires more specific education um, processes, I guess. So um, we, in the past, have been limited by the council offices and what they can offer in the way of education talks and so on. So this year, uh, last year, actually, I volunteered to pick up that um, role, I guess, as called uh, a role of offering more in the way of education because I believe if you have a policy, unless people know what it is, then it's not going to work. <laughs> need yeah. to educate people in what's happening, why we need to protect them and how we can do that. So I've been, along with the council officers, um, we've been delivering um, talks in schools um, and to any adult group of interest. So we haven't been advertising it yet. We don't have the, the group, the, the um, capacity yet. We've just been meeting inquiries, but we've been delivering talks to adult groups. Um, anything that comes through, we've done a garden club, we do Rotary, do Lions Club, all those sorts of things. Um, and then the school groups, we do all ages. Um, and I guess what's a very positive thing is here on the Sunshine Coast last year, and I imagine it'll continue this year, our grade four classes in primary school, they have a STEM project um, and, and their focus is on turtles. And they've chosen turtles because it's a species that lives here on the coast. They can look at environmental impacts, they can look at habitat, they can look at biology. And so that's, to me, a really great, um, I guess, future thing to think that yeah. let's teach the kids that live in this place about the animals that is living and nesting and 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 who's been using these beaches for thousands of years potentially it's vital i think that piece is vital because what that piece does is it ties into story or this is how i hear it it's tying into story and it's um you can't protect something if you don't care about it i've you know hear that again and again and again and um it it helps these younger people hear the context of their local ecosystem and hopefully some of those Really, you know, you just never know where this stuff ends up flowing to and hopefully some of those people, um, what they learn or people that they speak to about what they've learned, the ramifications of how that can seed other work, um, you you can't see that in advance. And I think that that sort of seeding is really important. Something that I wanted to raise about the education and the public and the people on the beaches and the opportunity that they 
uh, that's opened out by their curiosity is just really simple things. Like I know that when we were speaking earlier, we were talking about plastics, how turtles food includes jellyfish and turtle um, can often mistake plastic for uh, jellyfish. And yeah, I just wanted to hear you comment on that in terms of educational awareness. Sure. So it's true, <laughs> um, definitely. And the image of the plastic bag is something that was, uh, you know, I guess instrumental or part of the, the drive here in Australia to reduce the use of plastic bags in shopping and, and so on. And, and, that's been, and that's been really useful. Um, I guess what a lot of people don't know or maybe are beginning to know that that's not our, the plastic bag story is emotive and it's visual. So you can put a jellyfish and a plastic bag make an image of that and it, and they look the same. So it's it, it tells a story so people can go, oh, my gosh, yeah, it's just like a plastic bag, the turtle's going to eat it. The problem that we have starts much earlier than that. So there are different sizes of plastic in the ocean um, and the little tiny microplastics, which we can't see, that are floating around in the ocean. So remember when I was saying that the little hatchling swims out to the um, current and then when it gets in the current, it's this opportunistic feeder so it just opens his mouth and swallows what's in the water so a lot of um post hatchlings we call them so once they've actually hatched and they're out and, and they're swimming around they're still even in australian waters watching up on australian beaches are uh, being um up and they're full of microplastics oh, so the plastic issue is is relevant to species size so obviously an adult turtle would swallow the same microplastics, then they're going to pass, potentially they'll pass through that turtle system. Mm. But in a small turtle, it's relative. So a small, you know, uh, a piece of plastic half the size of my little fingernail would block the digestive tract of, yeah. of a baby turtle. So then yeah. the turtle, the, sorry, the plastic threats are across all sizes of plastic. So, the, you know, the number one thing that we get asked often by teachers as well, you know, to include in our presentations is what can the kids do? Mm. Um, and the number one thing that we can do here on the coast is look at light pollution in our houses, even if we live away from the beach, because every light in every house contributes to the glow. Mm. Um, but more importantly than that, even is just around plastic. So I would say to the kids, you know, if you see a piece of plastic on the footpath, that's going to end up in the stormwater drain. That's going to end up in the ocean. So we pick up. Not, it's great to go to the beach. And we really encourage that too. Everyone that goes to the beach, pick up every piece of plastic you see. Um, and we encourage the kids to go down and do little plastics, sit on the beach in a little section and just pick up all the little pieces that you see. And it seems a little bit like a drop in the ocean, literally, but yeah. it makes such it, it makes a difference. Plus, it empowers us to feel that we can make a difference. Mm. We can't be overwhelmed by the the extent of the problem and then go, oh, it's just too big a problem. We can at least stop any more going into the ocean. Mm. Um, one of my, you know, it's not, I haven't seen it as bad in this last couple of years, but when we first moved here, I was horrified by how many balloons would wash up on the beach. Oh, right. And with the strings attached. So, you know, you get a balloon and maybe anywhere, supermarket, a birthday party could be a long way from the ocean a helium balloon goes straight it gets away goes straight up in the air goes out it drops into the ocean and then potentially it's a huge not just turtles 
but anything that would ingest it. So when we talk as well, like when we're talking about conservation sea turtles, but those conservation efforts that we make as humans living on this planet will affect all species. So if we don't buy a balloon and we don't let the balloon, you know, I just say don't buy balloons, balloons are off, 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 then or drinking straws, things that end up in the ocean, if we just stop buying them, stop using them, then we know that we're not contributing to that. We're not adding to the problem. Sure, it's already a problem, but we don't want to add to that. And mm. so with the, or education around that, it's just around what can we do, what can we not, not what can we not consume that can potentially end up in the ocean, which yeah. then becomes, That's then such an important piece. That's such an important piece, that awareness, that choice and that sense of participation. Yeah, and also, the, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around in, in young children, it's you know, and it's quite a mental issue around climate change and Absolutely. you know the fate of the future. So, rather than focusing on the that, we need to be able to empower them. What can you do to change? What can you do? you can do this and you can do that and you can encourage mum and dad to do this and you can you know like yeah. things that are practicable so that they can feel part of creating change. Exactly. And I think that that encourages lateral thinking and creativity as well because, you know, kids just run, pick up the ball and run with it without and they're the, And, you know, they're the ones who will be coming up with solutions, solutions exactly. to problems that you or I can't even conceive. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Speaking of climate change, I wonder if you can make a comment about whether the changes of the temperature of the ocean have already begun to affect migration routes um, or currents. Yeah, so um, the, main, the main issue with sea turtles and climate change is what they call feminization of species. So um, turtle eggs, uh, sex determination is based on temperature in the sand. So... And it happens around midway. So the, it's usually, let's use an average, it's about 60 days incubation period. So they're reptiles. So it's not a gestation as such. It's an incubation. So the hotter the sand, the earlier they hatch, the colder the sand, the longer they take to hatch. So here on our beaches, if a, turtle, if a nest is laid in December and it's sitting in the sand through January into early February, it's going to come out sooner because it's hot summer here. If that nest is laid in late January, early February, it's going to come out to April, maybe even May, because it's the temperatures are getting colder and colder and will take the turtles longer to develop. So here on the coast, we have um, loggers in the sand, uh, data loggers in the sand determining temperature. We know that we produce mainly males. And that's really important from the perspective of climate change because what we're potentially going to lose are males. Because as it gets hotter, nesting and 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 that um, change in temperature comes down the coast, we're going to get more females and what were potentially male nesting sites, etc. Um, so that's there's a lot of research being done into that. Um, so for example, a lot of people would have heard of Rain Island, which is in far north Queensland, where they get these huge mass um, nestings of green turtles. Then you know the temperatures up there are such that they get all potentially all female hatchlings so then you're getting a lot more females so that you could say oh well that doesn't sound very good but we know as part of their life cycle that when a female turtle mates, she mates with multiple males so we also 
don't know how many males do we, it's not a 50-50 split. We don't need the same number of males that we do females. But what they're looking at is what is that critical point of number of males that are needed. So that's one issue around um, temperature and climate change that affects sea turtle biology. Um, the other thing that people looked at or were looking at was, well, does that mean that the turtle, when it gets too hot further north, will they just shift their range? Mm -hmm. So if we're pretty much near the bottom of the loggerhead range and then they nest up, you know, the Queensland coast, they don't go much past. There's a few nesting on the Great Barrier Reef Islands, but there's none too far north north Queensland. So they have a sort of specific range. So does that mean as it gets hotter, they're going to go yeah. south to do that? What they've found in initial research is not that they're going to change their choice, but they're going to just come earlier oh. because it's cooler. And so, we, which is amazing, it amazes me, how do, how do the turtles even know like that? And then... Um, they've done a lot of research with uh, flatback turtles. So flatback turtles are endemic to Australia. They live only, they don't migrate. They live on our Australian continental shelf. They're a beautiful turtle. They're probably my favourite. Um, they, they basically live in from um, central Queensland right across the top around to sort of central WA. Um, again, different genetic stocks in different areas. Um, so they've they've done some research on their patterning and what they found is they came earlier but they didn't shorten the end so instead of coming and laying four clutches over two months they came earlier and they did an extra one potentially so you know there's a lot of question always I remember early on in our experience with Dr. Olympus and someone always, you know, people are very concerned and rightly so about climate change. I remember him saying, you know, these, we have had sea turtles, there were sea turtles living in the um, Jurassic age. Like they're a dinosaur, they have dinosaur roots mm -hmm. and they've adapted to all of the different changes in climate we've had in the millennia. So he's not so much worried about changes in climate as such as you would be worried about plastic ingestion ingestion and effects from human um presence yeah yeah like fishing for example let's be and now in the, and now in queensland boat strike you know turtles turtles getting hit by boats you know, in the turtle rehabilitation centres, they're coming in primarily. You know, sure, some have some disease, but they're coming in with plastic ingestion and, and from boat strike. Yeah. You know, I mentioned that we do this work on the islands. And, and, you know, here on the Sunshine Coast, we don't see a lot of adult turtles. Our numbers are very small. We're a very small percentage of the population nesting here. But up on the islands where you get a lot of hundreds of turtles a night, for example, um, not loggerheads. Because as I said, there's not so many of those, um, but green turtles, especially, um, we've done some work on one of the islands that was a green turtle um, rookery, so hundreds and hundreds of green turtles a night. Um, we also, not last year, the year before, not last season, the season before we did a flatback island where, you know, 50, 60 flatbacks coming up on a 150 metre beach every night. Wow. So you're seeing, physically seeing a lot of turtles. What amazes me is, 
they can they can survive some pretty horrific injuries. Um, sharks as well, you know, sharks obviously where there's a be a bite out of the carapace. So they they're pretty amazing, but the forces of human presence are outweighing their capacity to survive. So the more we can intervene in in that way, whether that's by you know, reducing our use of plastics, looking how we can be involved, or from our perspective on the beach within the turtle care program, looking at um, relocating eggs, protecting hatchlings, meshing nests from so foxes and dogs can't dig them up, you know, those sorts of things. And, and different, there are different methodologies being used around the world depending on what the problem is on the nesting beaches. In far north Queensland in the Gulf, you know, the threats are... Um, uh, pigs and um, crocodiles, dogs, small percentage. Um, so the, the teams that are working up there, there's huge Indigenous groups of sea rangers who are protecting, you know, turtles across the northern uh, parts of Australia as part of these turtle um, protection programs because from an Indigenous perspective, these species are very special as well. You know, they, they, they're embedded in their their stories and their their um their country is their country so they're doing a lot of work there but the work's different because you know obviously they don't have a there's not a city next to there so they're isolated so then how do they get there and then how often can they get there and then how do they how do they work with those predators that are decimating sea turtles so then there's this innovative approach to protection based on location Mm, mm. And I imagine some of those predators up there would be increasing, like feral pigs, for example. Yeah, yeah. So as part of those, so as part of those, um, and as part of those protections, then you know they would have um, funding for shooting feral pigs, or you know, then there's other there's other programs that run alongside those mm, mm. processes, I guess. So the work that you do and the, the group that you're with is in communication with these other different populations in different areas. So Yeah, and that we're not specifically, but certainly the the uh, above are. So there's the Turtle Care Program, which is at a council level, and it's very specific. So, for example, my permit, I'm accredited to do this type of work. I've had training and I've been given permission to do the work. But that work is restricted to... Um, the Sunshine Coast and Bribie Island. Yeah. When yeah. I go up and do work on an on an island um, that we do generally in November December, then I'm I'm getting a different permit from the same government Queensland government department that allows me to do that work for a defined period on that island and only that island. Uh-huh. So it's not like you I can just go around willy nilly and do my work as I see it, you know. <laughs> um, so, of course, Cole, and as I said, Cole's a renowned, internationally renowned and respected because it's 50 years of fertile research. So he's the one who teaches us about what's happening up in the Western Cape. He's the one who tells the stories about how they manage that. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that you know, and, and just a note on him, I guess, and how important he's been in this Pro program. He's he spends three months every year at Monrepo, which is the primary mainland nesting site for these loggerhead turtles. And every year, now he's in his early eighties and still working and doing that. Um, but 
In 50 years of research, they estimate that he's had 10,000 volunteers through the Monrepo Research Centre. So they have volunteers on the ground there for the three months of the nesting period. This is pre-COVID, yeah? Um, so that's a lot of people. Now, every night, if we think about education, and this has really been instilled in me through call, every night for that three months after dinner, Cole gives an hour lecture to whoever's there on turtle something, mm. biology, migration, um, incubation. So this is this runs through the whole program that it's the education is always there and it's continuing and ongoing yeah you know you don't learn it all and then okay you have it it's like because the research is changing things are changing yeah 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 oh, you know I when, love it yeah when he yeah. started his research you know decades 40 years ago he they didn't know how long it took how old was a female turtle when she came to the beach so he started a process a program and he thought Maybe it'll be 10 years yet. I can probably devote 10 years towards that. 28 years later, a turtle came up on the beach that had been marked 28 years before to go, oh, my God, it's 28 years. You know, so that sort of longevity of research enables this um, huge environment of conservation around it, whereas... You know, if someone dedicates a smaller period of time, sure, the research is invaluable, but it, it can't generate the momentum. data, yeah. That this has. You know, some of the islands in the Great Barrier Reef, Heron Island, for example, has had turtle researchers on it for the last more than 50 years. The researchers on there 60 years ago. So all of that data goes towards our understanding. And, and in order to conserve something, we have to understand it better. Yeah, we have to understand it and we have to care about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And you can't do that to this extent without volunteers. Correct. Yeah. One person cannot do this. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do anything alone. No. So I wonder if you can give us, Lisa, um, some contacts of where people can find out more about this and how they might participate in in whatever capacity. Sure. There's there's a couple of things. Um there, so if you're interested in just a starting point, there's a lot of information on our website. That's if, if you um, Google Turtle Care Sunshine Coast, that, that'll take you to our website. It's a pack of scientific and conservation information on there, I guess. Um, the actual department that I was mentioning that we fall under is the Department of Environment um, here in Queensland. The other thing that's really interesting and potentially interesting for people who aren't in Australia or even if they're in other parts of Australia, there's a great um, website called TurtleNet. So one of the ways that we can track um, turtles is now is we can put a satellite tracker on a turtle um, that's on the beach and then track where it, where it goes. So we can have a turtle nesting here on the coast, we can put a tracker on it and find out where she lives. So very rare is it that they live and nest in the same place. So um, we had the last ones that we did, one lives in a very small reef um, in the central Great Barrier Reef and the other one lives down near Brunswick Heads, which is just near the Gold Coast. Um, so that's the, the usefulness of trackers. So the, what TurtleNet have done, they've taken all seven species, they've loaded across the world and they've loaded all the satellite tracking data. So you can go on there and select by species or look to where you live and see what nesting turtle beaches might be around you. Because a lot of people, I still meet people every day. You go, I had no idea this was happening on our beach. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, thanks for all of that. And how can we find out more about that man that you've done so much work with, so much study with? His name is Dr. Paul Pollen, Limpus, L-I-M-P-U-S. Um, and there's a lot of information, videos. He's, you know, 50 years of research has very well, been very well documented. And, yeah, he's, he's an amazing man, um, an inspiration, a real inspiration. For, for, um, and, and he's a great believer in, in educating from walking up. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's really important for all of us to remember. Yeah. I'll grab all of those contacts from you later and um, make sure that they go on the show notes so that people can follow all those links. Um, and just before we go, I wondered if you might share anything with us about the correlation that you experience in your body with yoga and with turtle care. Um. So I guess the correlation for me is is not so much in relation to turtle care. It's in relation to being in the environment mm. that they inhabit. So it's the um, and 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 the correlation to yoga, of course, is connecting with that thing larger than ourselves or that universal consciousness that pervades everything. Um, so one way that I certainly feel that when I'm on the beach. Um, and so I guess by participating in this turtle conservation project, it puts me in touch with that habitat and that experience of, of, of ocean, um, and it also shifts my perspective more into the presence, which is, of course, all related to yoga, in that when I'm working with turtles, we're very much reoriented towards, especially when we're living and doing island work where we're living in, in the environment, um, it reorients us towards day and night and tide. So their activities are very much tidal. So we're very much more in touch with what the tides are doing, what the moon's doing, because we're working at night in without lights. So obviously moonscape is important. So it brings us in, me in connection with that on a holistic level, yeah, which yeah. brings me more in contact with, that um, or, or allows me to touch more that universal consciousness. It also puts me in my place. Yes, like, yes. Puts me in my place, both energetically. Yeah, but also it, it takes away a lot of what we would call the human activity and makes us more animalistic. I feel more in touch with that part of my nature when I'm out when I'm outside and, and doing yeah, beautiful. That's really beautiful, Lisa. It takes me to Ishvara Pranidana, you know, so yes. something greater than oneself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah oh, sure. Thank you so much. That was incredibly informative. I learned so much and That's I am lovely. very grateful for your generosity here, of your oh, knowledge. And I appreciate, I appreciate that you um, wanted to talk to me and that you're going to put this out there for maybe other like-minded people to hear and, and generate some interest. It will be the inaugural podcast on <laughs> the Saltwater Songlines podcast. So thank you. So I've been speaking with Lisa Baldwin. Um, Lisa, just let us know where we can connect with you personally, like your website. Oh, sure. Sure. So my uh, my website is my name. It's Lisa, L-E-I-S-A Baldwin, B-A-L-D-W-A-N. Um, I don't have a huge social media presence. I do have a Facebook page. 
um, I tend to divert my energies to uh, other areas where I can be of more service. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank you, Narelle. Namaste. Namaste.